0: and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started.
1: My name is Adam Homie. I am your host. And I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you into the field, to the places you go, where you have those aha moments and mastermind meetings that can change your life or at least bring you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. As a result, you may hear things in the background. Right now, if you listen closely, you hear a jet flying overhead as I am broadcasting to you from my balcony in our new office here in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, known to some as the hottest city in America. That's right, we just relocated from one place in Las Vegas to another place in Las Vegas. So this is the inaugural episode of us broadcasting from our brand new location, which means my new balcony, which I just set up last night. Uh, our guest today is the very first beneficiary of my new environment. I'm kicking back here. I uh, sit in my wicker chair, um, dressed appropriately for Las Vegas, which means a, a, a heavy sweatshirt uh, with riding shorts. <laughs> That's pretty appropriate for this time of year. I got my cigar lid. A glass of home brewed iced tea, sweetened with three stevia packets, sitting beside me. And I am ready for action. And the action here today is going to be about proposals how to write proposals, how to boost your sales. Our guest is going to share how to take proposal pain away, utilize technology to cut down on the back and forth with clients, and raise your average prospect's profitability or pro- project's profitability by putting prospects in control. Now, if I didn't touch on about six price points of project-based work uh, in that little statement right there, then I urge all of you as our listeners to step up your game and make more deals because we have all, those of us who work on project bases, like I do, for example, uh, run into this. And it was a lot of years for me to figure out some of the shortcomings, avoid some of the pitfalls. And get out of being on the short end of the stick when it comes to things like feature creep, uh, creative interpretations once the agreement is already done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The client who ghosts for six months and then reappears wondering why the project didn't somehow magically get done after they blew you off. Oh, we could go on and on and on here. But we're going to focus heavily on the proposal side of things and how we use that to not only counteract a lot of this stuff, but also put – greater profit margins into your business. And I wish I had known today's guest 15 years ago. His name is Joe Artiser, and uh, he is a formal digital agency owner of 12 years with the battle scars to prove it. He's worked with notable brands such as Bluetooth, T-Mobile, and Scantron, and built his agency from himself as a solopreneur to a team of 12. So he has quite a backstory here. I'm actually going to let him tell you a bit about it, but let's bring him in. Joe, come on in. The weather's fine.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. I'm excited to talk and you got me really fired up with some of this, uh, these starter thoughts.
1: (laughs) Yes. So before we get into this, what we like to do is we like to go behind the curtain. I read off just a piece of your official bio. And the reason I can only do those first couple sentences because that alone is so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here. And this is my show. So <laughs> what I'm looking for you to do is tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Take it away.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'd say, you know, an interesting uh tidbit about me, Adam, which, you know, may be encouraging to some listeners is. <clears throat> I was actually uh, raised by my grandparents. I was a foster kid uh, for the first six years. And, you know, we, we went to the food bank, uh, food stamps. Um, I was used to getting all of my clothes from uh, the Goodwill or um, Value Village at the time. And one of the things I learned early on is that no one was going to do some do it for me. I, I had to, if I was going to uh, work hard and um, as, uh, accomplish something, I was going to have to do it on my own. And so that was a big driver uh, that led me to be an entrepreneur. Um, real quick sketch of my background. I, I started at, I got my first job at Burger King. Uh, loved, uh, I loved, I sweep better <laughs> because of that job. Um, but I also started my first SaaS product, which was online staff scheduling for fast food restaurants. Uh, uh-huh. When I left, it, When I left the company, we actually had 60 restaurants using it a four-year venture. Um, Then I did corporate for two years. I started my agency after that for 12 years, as as you had mentioned. I learned so much. And when I say battle scars, I mean it. Um, And then I did corporate again. And then about about a year, year and a half ago, um, I started Smart Pricing Table, which is um, business-to-business proposal software.
1: Oh, fantastic. And we'll discover more about that as we went along. It's funny. Your first job was Burger King. My first job was Wendy's. It was uh, after I turned 16. I got my driver's license. I got my car. And I wanted nothing more than to get out there and make some money. I grew up in this really rural area that makes the sticks look like a metropolis. That's how far out it was. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't even get a grass cutting business going because there was just nobody around. Uh, So I needed to get the hell out of there and go to where the money was. So I was applying left and right, uh, places within like a 30-minute driving radius. I walked into this Wendy's one day. I handed him an application, and uh, and, uh, it got off to such an auspicious start. The assistant manager who was working there said, "Um, do you have a social security card? And I said, yeah, okay, cool. You're hired. Wow. (laughs) Okay, there's vetting. But I ended up working at Wendy's for five and a half years. It became my part-time job while I was in college during the summers that I used to uh, raise the money to pay for uh, stereo system components for my Camaro and uh, funding for the Penn State weekend, which is uh, any Penn Stater knows begins on Thursday night and ends Tuesday afternoon. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I learned a good bit about logistics, actually, in that Mm -hmm. job over time. And it wasn't like a formal education, but I discovered for example, that I could look at the processes that I swear the the flow charts for how we were supposed to do our jobs were written by people who'd probably never even eaten at a Wendy's, much less been in the back room of one. It's like their ideas of how opening procedures, closing procedures, pre-rush and post-rush procedures are supposed to work was just ridiculous. Like I figured out that I could combine the after-dinner post-rush and one-fourth of the pre-close into a one hour increment by simply rearranging the steps. Right. And uh and I had to and I had to hear about every time because our store was um was a designated training store, which means that's where all the assistant managers in training did their time before they got assigned to their permanent position. And uh yeah all these assistant manager training training wannabes are holding a manual and they're instructing me how to do my job it's like it's like get the fuck out of my way. <laughs> I right. think I actually said that to a couple of them. Uh, now, our store manager, he was obligated due to corporate policy to be the closing manager one night a week. And there was no possible way I could escape working that Wednesday night. Uh, even when I had other jobs, he would prevail upon me to at least come in that Wednesday night and close with him because he loved how I could save him an hour and a half in labor cost simply by rearranging a few steps. Right. And what was also great is He also typically assigned me, because uh, that, that same Wednesday night, the, we got our twice-weekly shipment of supplies, you know, food, uh, and everything else from our shipping company, which came in right after dinner, and they'd leave about 40 boxes stacked on the curb, and somebody had to put them in the freezer, the cooler, bring some inside, put them in various places, what have you. So I learned a lot about how to rotate perishables in a very small space. And create very tall stacks of boxes that would not fall. This <laughs> yeah, has been this has been very helpful to me in all the moves I've done over the years. I,
2: I, I'd imagine, Adam. You know, it, it's funny th- those initial jobs are just so helpful. You know, establishing your base work ethic. Um, another thing that comes to mind is just really. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I uh, if, if I recall correctly, you also uh, ran an agency for a short stint and. Um, so much of business is is around building systems. Um, uh, a recent podcast I listened to of yours actually talked about you know you you build the systems and then people run the systems. Yeah. But I remember you know I I, I love my time in in uh, quick service because you you have to you learn about those systems and it's like how how quickly can I open a box and do what I need to do with it? How do I you know control the stock room so that when I need a certain product that I need it's there and I'm not you know accidentally missing something and over ordering. And so I I love I love working hard. I love working fast um some sometimes um and I really love systems and so yeah everything tends to kind of line up a lot of times with our work right.
1: and also without it being formally presented to me I got a crash course in negotiation because I figured out how to get shifts that I really wanted and how to uh, get to do things like uh, handle the stock order, um, do all the offline work and such, rather than stand in a position and serve customers the whole time. And also how to uh, get it so that I could actually tell an assistant manager and training to fuck off right to their face when they tried to tell me what to do. Uh, and it was real simple. Right. I came to understand that our training store manager was uh, part of the bonus that he got was based on his ability to control labor costs. So I showed him that every time, uh, he assigned me those, those roles, I saved him money.
2: Right.
1: He loved that. And I did, and I did, and I did it in such a way that created no hazards and had no impact whatsoever on quality of service to customers. In fact, it enhanced it because it enabled me to be free of that sooner so that, uh, if he had some uh, 17-year-old wanting, they wanted to get sent home early because they wanted to go to a party. He could send them home, and uh, I'd just take care of it.
2: Right.
1: So I got right. more hours that way. So what I learned is find out what actually motivates somebody. Find out what is going to inspire them to give you what they want by giving them what – give you what you want by giving them what they want. He wanted to do everything he could. To keep labor costs in line, because he was being graded on that in terms of the amount of extra money that was tacked on to his paycheck. So I figure out after a while that all the uh, you know, all the uh, altruistic appeals to delivering total quality and repeating the corporate slogans didn't mean anything. What mattered to him was he was going to get more take home money, right? Right. And and I, and I'm I'm not criticizing him because. Is I mean, and and he and he liked being the manager there. He really enjoyed it. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, we work to work, uh, and we have lives outside of that, and we want to do well at work so that we can fund our lifestyles. Right,
2: right. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a, a recent uh, a job I had a few years ago, where you know, I the the big idea was retention, keeping subscriptions, and as a CEO, I've always been you know, I've, I've been kind of trained through the fire to think, what's the the maximum impact I can make with the limited time and resources that I have? And so I I love finding those, you know, core KPIs and really killing it.
1: Yeah. So the reason we took this initial segue into this trip down memory lane of our college era fast food <laughs> jobs is I just, I, I like to do this sometimes when I can to illustrate that the lessons that serve as entrepreneurs can be found in places we weren't originally looking. And sometimes we don't even recognize that we receive the lessons until years later when we have the aha moment. Right. Like I didn't really discover the value I got out of having that job until I was well into entrepreneurship and I was figuring out how to get scatterbrained entrepreneurs to focus.
2: Right. Because
1: yeah. I was, I, I, was able, I was able to serve it to them in the form of you'll get your stuff launched faster and make more money. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So uh let's get into this proposal stuff. Very important. And uh and I know there's a few points you want us to cover and you gave them to me in the green room. I'm gonna mix them up a little bit, uh, but we're gonna cover all five of them because I think there's a different starting point and I think it kind of ties into where we are right now. Um, where do businesses fail when it comes to proposal writing? Let's start with the pain. Yeah.
2: Yeah, lots of lots of different ways. Um, what are some of the big ones that come to mind? Um <clears throat> I think uh, um, trying to actually think of some of the. I, I do a lot of um, uh, a real estate investment, and I've gotten a lot of uh, proposals from uh, contractors. Yeah. Um, I think I think one of the the big big items or the the big ones that I see all the time is not really clarifying what you're actually offering. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, for instance, uh, uh, a classic example of this is I, I saw a uh, proposal a while back that said, you know, uh, we'll create business cards for you and print materials, and you look to the right and it says a thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the The problem with that, and I think it's very, very common, is you you fail to put a fence around your work. Um, uh-huh. I like. I like thinking of what's included and what's not included. And, and uh, you know, the, with that specific example, well, how many revisions are included um, with the, the business cards? What's the quality of the paper that's being used? Are there any options for that? Um, who actually covers the printing cost? And when a business fails to put those fences around their work, they really have three three things that can happen. The first thing is it just, they get lucky and it works out. Uh, the second thing mm-hmm. is um, that they have to arbitrarily cut the project off um, just because they're not making any money and they end up looking like a jerk. Yep. Um, or uh, a third one, and this is what I always did with my former agency, um, the business has to eat it. Um, and I, I would always tell my team, look, if we don't if we don't specify what we're bringing to the table, if we don't put handles, parameters around our work, well, we're going to pay for that. Um, that's our responsibility. So I, I'd say yeah. that's, a, that's a really big one uh, that comes right to mind.
1: Yeah, Joe, I've been there. I uh, underbid a project so bad that I ended up literally paying for the privilege of completing the project. I've been there, so I know how it feels. In the end, I made the customer happy, and he ended up using it for, he ended up using the liberal. We built it for him for five years. I was very happy that he kept it for five years. And then after five years, he was ready for a refresh. And by that time, I wasn't in that business anymore. So he worked with somebody else. And uh, and that was great. Uh, I also was involved with uh, the launch of one of the initial uh podcast guest booking agencies that created the Entrepreneurity Guest to Host Connection. And uh, this was back, uh, wow, it's well over 10 years ago. And what's funny is, is they've changed their business model about three times. Uh, They charge about 20 times more for their services than they did when I, when I, uh, was with them with, with the initial launch, I'm almost saying who they are because there's really only one agency that charges that much and, uh, and everybody used to work for them. And uh, what's funny is their brand has changed. They brought in a partner, uh, their service range has changed their, their logo, their, I think even their colors have changed. But what's funny is that bits and pieces of the copy that I wrote for them 12 years ago can still be found on the website.
2: Right. Right.
1: Right. I che- I check it every so often, and I just chuckle benignly to myself that little pieces of it are still there.
2: Right, right. You, you. What's do I remember correctly? I I can't remember the gentleman you were speaking to, but uh, I remember you, you said something about owning. Did you own a web design or something web related for a short stint, Adam? Up
1: up until 2011, when I shut the damn thing down. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Good deal. I, I, uh, I remember one of the, I talked to a lot of different agencies uh, over the years. And one of the a common thing is just um, the client management, working with clients can be so painful um, yeah. uh, and uh, all sorts of pitfalls. Perfect. One of the things that we really prided ourselves on is wasn't was in fact the proposals, because I think I think so much of business um success on a project success with a, a customer really hinges on um, an agency or business's ability uh, to pr- provide a quality proposal you know yeah. the terms all those kind of things um another another uh, pitfall off I might uh, mention uh with proposals is not uh, leveraging past work this is I know this is epidemic an epidemic wow with, with agencies. okay I'.
1: Okay, let me let me let me sit up and get out my notepad and two pens for this one. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, so so how, you know, ask yourself have I done this where you grab a proposal from 3 months ago that feels similar. Cool. Right? Um or uh you you grab, you know, you just open up a document and you start writing or you copy and paste something. But but what you're not doing is building an actual system, right? You're uh, it's a, you're, you're, well, you have a system, it's messy, but it's basically grab bits and pieces from different emails, from your Dropbox account, mm-hmm. and then try to Frankenstein it together. Um, the, the, the challenge is, you know, as you know, there's, there's the part of, of life where you're working in the business and you're working on the business and that with that mentality, that kind of approach, you're always working in it. Um, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big margin guy i i i've I've never wanted my business to run me, and for the large majority of it, I've always ran it um but you you can't you can't create margin. you can't have time to think if you're always reacting and just um you know throwing slapping proposals together versus you know, slowing down uh, and asking big questions,
1: yeah, I think that I think that is um. Very important. You know, it's very interesting. I never really thought of it that way before that um, relying on your past work could be an issue. I mean, I've uh, had little things happen when I have Frankenstein proposals. I think the funniest example is that uh, one of the proposals we wrote, and this was way back, uh, was for a venture in which a friend of mine who was a a top 40 performing artist uh, was one of the involved partners. So, about three proposals down the line, um, I had uh, my prospect come to me and and they asked me, why does Benny Mardona sit in on our meetings?
2: Right,
1: right. Oops. <laughs>
2: right.
1: So, uh, so that, that's a micro example. A macro example to me is that every client is different. And if you attempt to apply one model that you use for a previous client to an upcoming client, that you're going to miss a lot of not only nuances, but also potential opportunities.
2: Yeah, yeah. Copy and paste can definitely lead to that, and feeling like it's a, a bit impersonal. Um, a good example of this is, you know, at my agency, um, I, I think it's really valuable to over time see the patterns. What's the repeatable work that we do? Not not because you're going to do cookie cutter work, but because if you're doing something different every time, mm-hmm. I would argue that's hell. <laughs> yeah. You know, You can't build momentum unless you're seeing those patterns and you're you're cranking out similar things, but doing it better each time. And so a a real classic example of this is, you know, with my old agency, we had a blog line item. Yeah. Well, A blog can be a thousand dollar line item. It could be a friggin million dollar line item. Yeah, it Um, could. Uh, but what we would do is, is we'd step out and we'd say, look, we keep doing blogs. We need to define these. And so we we wrote out a specific line item that says blog, features included, you know, base page uh, or base homepage with the, with the, the blog loop, um, individual post page. Maybe we'd have like um, author bio pages and then we right. would incorporate um, uh, little upsells like Oh would you like um would you like related posts that's 250 um would you like um uh, I think author bio pages was another upsell um you know 500 uh so you can have all these different upsells but then you save that as a reusable piece of property that you can then sell later on down the road and when i'd have a customer that would bring to us something that we hadn't done for a while or it was a first time thing I would get excited because it represented an opportunity for me to think through it in a really client-independent way, take the customer out of it, think through what is it, save it, and then in the future, I can sell it in a second. I can add it to a proposal. Yeah, I think that's,
1: I think that's key. And uh, what I eventually developed when I was cranking out proposals left and right back in the day was that uh, I actually kind of backwards stumbled into a very similar thing. Uh eventually when I started making all those little macro and micro errors with Frankensteining, I just sat down and I built the mother of all proposals that covered every single possible thing that we could do. Right. So whenever something new came in, I just save as that master document and then just cut out the stuff that wasn't applicable.
2: Yeah. yeah. Ended it's up saving how- a
1: lot of time. And in my master document, I also put notes to myself, you know, highlighted uh, you know, using the yellow highlighter, what the price was so that I did the math correctly. But I, yeah. of course I took all that out before I showed it to him.
2: Yeah, that's fine. That That's exactly where I started. Um, and really that was the impetus for my SAS product It's basically that, but on steroids. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: A couple other little things. I just want to cover this for our listeners just while we're here. And and, and I, I bring this up because so many folks missed this. Is it, um, that uh every proposal should have a sunset date of how long it's valid for sure. uh because yeah. what happens i had this happen to me once is that um you know we sent our proposal for something and the client said and the pro, it was actually already an existing client coming back for something else they said no we're not going to do that right now and then six six months later they asked for substantially the same thing so i sent them the document but with our new pricing on it right. and they said wait a minute um this time around, we're only asking for like one third of what we asked for six months ago. And you're actually charging us more for it. Right. Uh, what happened to the other number? And I said six months went by. Right. Right. Now, fortunately, I was intelligent enough. I was at the level with this with this client because they came back so often that we would just do this by email. I was intelligent enough six months ago to remember to say this proposal is good for 30 days, beginning on such and such dates. Yeah, And I was able to point to that and they said, oh yeah, I get it. Okay, cool. We'll go with the new price. And it was just,
2: um, it was that little tag, that little line, right? That you put in the proposal uh that gave you the the ability to do that, right? You know, you think of days like today where inflation's, you know, just rampant. That's really important. But also in six months, maybe you've hired two more team members, you've repositioned your company and you charge a heck of a lot more. Um, And so if you don't have a clause like that, you've really... Um, kind of put yourself in a corner. Here's another one, the abandonment clause. Uh, And I think this is reasonable.
1: So let's say that um, there's no communication on the project for 30 days, despite your efforts to do so. I ran into this once, and fortunately, I had the foresight for it. Um, I had this one client who, uh, due to the nature of his work, he would get really busy for like seven months of the year. So I guess the way he timed the project, uh, it kind of cut into his busy season. And uh, he just stopped responding on it, and uh, I made several attempts to outreach. I didn't hear anything back, and then the, on a random Friday night, he sent this very long email. that was about nine long paragraphs long, castigating me, saying I had no professionalism, I totally dropped the ball, I had a major problem to fix, and and uh, and uh, and uh, that he was coming back and he was going to ride my ass to make sure this actually got done. Right. And I re- and I replied. Our last attempt to connect connect with you and this was such and such a date. Uh, we didn't hear back from you. The your, uh, signed agreement states there's a thirty day abandonment clause. I don't even have to speak with you.
2: Right. Send. Right.
1: And uh, he came back that Monday morning. Just oh oh oh, I didn't I didn't realize you were waiting for me. I must have missed some emails. I'm so sorry. So how how do we get this done? It's like aha. Right. Simply right. because I covered that base and was able to, hey, if, if you wanted to be a hard ass with me after blowing me off, I could be a hard ass in return and doing a lot less words. Like, okay, well, we got that all the way, so now that field is clear. So let's get back to where we were and get it done. And uh, we ended up delivering, you know, giving him a deliverable that he ended up using for six years.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's a, just another great example, Adam, of of the the uh, value of crafting your. Proposal in a way where you can win. A lot of people hate client work, but really, what they hate is the ambiguity and the fact that they can't grab onto anything. Uh, the The longer we built and invested in our proposal system, the less and less problematic customers we had because we would eat concrete, right? As you do in business, if you fall on your face, um, and then you always, we, I would always tell my team, let's go back to our proposal process and ask the question what do we need to change so that can't ever happen again you yeah. do that long enough and um, problem projects just become a rarity
1: yeah and uh and uh, just little things like that like sunsets on uh how long the proposal is good for and yeah. with it and within the agreements covering things like abandonment clauses and also um and also uh, feature creep that can be an issue too yeah. and um what I've also discovered, particularly when I had the web development firm, you could make 100 bullet points of exactly what you were going to do, and by the time you were done, you might deliver 100 things, but it would be 93 different bullet points than what you originally planned.
2: Right.
1: It's funny how that works. Right. So, what I, so what I also uh, discovered, and I'd like to get your insights on this, is when you have processes that you attempt to break down into small pieces, but those keep changing as you go through the project... How to, how to write something in such a way where you can be specific enough that you can keep pointing back to it to prevent feature creep without additional fees, but at the same time maintain your flexibility so that as the project evolves in real time and it doesn't go exactly as you planned, you still end up at the same finish line on about the same tank of gas?
2: Yeah. Yeah, great question. I, I think the, the word that comes to mind for me is mitigation, Right, I, I I'm doing this for 12 years. I knew I know there's there's never a perfect project, and it never went exactly as we'd hoped. But if you if you don't outline anything, you can almost assuredly guarantee it won't go how you hope. Right? Yeah. Or or if on the other side you're so freaking detailed, you know you're gonna you're gonna turn off customers like like left and right. But what what I like doing is you know, giving a basic outline of the work that's required, that gives you something to grab onto. It sets the overall size and scope of the project. You know, if I defined a, a blog, again, use that example, and I, I put three three layouts on it, you know, we can be flexible and we can swap out a layout for that, right? But there's no way my customer is going to interpret um, the the blog as this massive effort when you look at the scope of work table. So, yeah. I, I think the big the big key is mitigation. And on the long run, you know you, there, you're going to have some projects where your hour your billable hourly rate is really really high because it worked out great. Other times it'll be a little bit lower, but shouldn't get killed if you're providing a, a, a good amount of parameters you know you touch on something right there that you're going to
1: you're going to win some and lose some uh so there're some projects that are just going to go so well that your margins are going to be up even higher than you expected and you just take that cuz you know there's a few where they're not going to come in quite the same uh so you learn that life balances out and you learn the strategies for making that happen but uh another thing that comes to mind is uh particularly when it's a first time client and i think it actually applies even if they're a tenth time client, is to write a proposal that makes them feel like it's what they asked for and is going to give them the deliverables and the value that represent the return on investment that they're expecting. Let me give you an example of this. Years and years and years ago when I first thought I was an entrepreneur, I was in a joint venture where myself and somebody else uh, co-provided an introductory service. And then the idea behind it is we do the introductory service and then that would reveal you know, and then leads to the bigger projects. You get the idea. So the most painful part of that was when uh, my partner and I would have the meeting about the proposal for the big project. And those calls just went on and on and on because uh, every time he said the word and I'd brace myself because he was adding even more to the project to make the number bigger. The most egregious example that I have is um, in one of the clients, uh, they said, well, we have our own web, we have our own web designer. We don't need your design help. Uh, We just need you to uh, work with her and tell her what to do. And I'm like, oh man, manna from heaven. But my partner insisted on adding a line item that says, if you choose for us to do the work, this this is how much it'll cost. Well, Mm -hmm. you you might imagine we didn't get that one. And then, and then we, And then we didn't get about nine other proposals in a row approved. I mean, it got to the point where I got so tired of hearing the word no that I shut down my computer and went down to the park for a walk. And then, uh, this is about the ninth time in three weeks I heard the word no. And it's like, what am I doing this for? Uh, so the, so the irony was, is when I came back a couple hours later, I found out that my assistant had been trying to get a hold of me, but I'd left my phone at home. That's how much I didn't want to be bothered. And, uh, and she said, well, um, that person has said no this morning. They've changed their mind. We've been trying to get a hold of you because they need to give you their updated credit card to process the the payment to get started. It's like, okay, but yeah. BC, my point. Now, after that partnership ended, I just des- I uh, decided to uh, go back to those folks who had told us no, and, and my approach was, look, I'm I'm not here. I'm not trying to do any recovery. I'm not trying to get your business. Uh, Notice how I'm using the word "not" with trying to get your business, uh, you know NLP and all that. So, but uh, but I legitimately was not trying to do these sales calls. i was saying, look, this isn't about me and my partner. This is just you and me talking. Nice. So, if you could just tell me what was it in your own words, in your own truth, that caused you to say no to our proposal, I'm really trying to learn from this. And what I heard time and time again was, is I asked for A, B, and C. And you guys insisted on giving us a proposal that went from all the way from A to Q. Right. And you just weren't giving us what we asked for. And the funny thing is, is a couple of them said, and you know, if you're still in, if you're still in it for A, B, and C, I'd like to work with you. It's like, okay, I'm right. not in that partnership anymore. Let's do it.
2: Right. Right. So I,
1: so I, so I ended up getting business because I went back and to, just to try and learn why I didn't get business.
2: Yeah, yeah. That that's a very common mistake, which is basically you're just not listening to your customer, right? I, I think w- with the the basic process at my old agency was we we had to initially um, set up a a discovery call. I wouldn't I wouldn't create a proposal without having a conversation with them. Uh huh. Um, And uh, we really tried to, you know, hear I I wanted to I wanted to send them a proposal that signaled I was listening. I know exactly what you you're looking for and and we can deliver that. Um, I I, I think the, the thing that you talked about specifically that hits me hits me the most with contractors. I can't tell you how many times I've asked for like an electrical bid and I say, hey, can you part it out like this and this and this? Um, and then can you line item this specific thing out? And it's just many times, not that at all. Um, and so I, I think I think for that for a prospect, it really builds trust that you you listen to the specific details uh, when I was talking to you and you gave me a proposal that was reflective of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I and I would just add while we're just covering little micro bases here is to make sure that um, you know in addition to the sunset on the estimate, the abandonment clause also to specify how feature creep works, right? Uh, so that they can see and that thing that they agreed to that if it goes uh, if it goes out of scope that they're going to pay extra. They knew that going in or should have read it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, one of the ways that we accomplished that, we had a few different ways. One was it, we had that bare uh, uh, a minimal amount of outlining, right? So you, yep. you've got some clarity there. Uh, but I was surprised at how often this next tactic worked. Almost I almost had no issues with this. We were a fixed bid kind of uh, one and done projects. We did do maintenance afterwards, but it was like big, high-end projects. And uh, what I would do is I'd actually just throw in the line item uh, again to revisit the the blog example because I've already flushed that out a bit. Uh, I, I could, we could put something like um, "There's a, a maximum of, of ten hours of development included on this line item." Yeah, and you you think that I get a lot of you know uh, pushback on that? Almost never happened. And what's great about that is, um, and this is another principle I think with good writing, good proposals. Your clauses aren't something that you have to be wooden about, but they give you something, right? So maybe we say, maybe we're like to spend 10 hours, we're cutting it off, done. I wouldn't go that approach, but I could say, you know, we're getting really close to 10 hours. I'm going to actually give you two extra hours, but at that point, then we're going to need to kind of cut this off. And we can't, if we can't, don't get that feature done. We just got to call it good. Well, in that situation, I'm not a jerk. I'm a hero. Yeah. I, I gave two extra hours um and there was a little bit of scope creep didn't didn't affect the project as a whole for my agency uh, but the customers really really happy um uh, with with uh, the outcome.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember uh, and this was many many years ago. I was on the board of a professional organization that hired web designers and uh, and there was one person we were used to working with, and he yeah, he had built out the organization's website. Did a really nice job with it. It was um, written in Cold Fusion, which uh, you have to go back a while to remember where Cold Fusion was. Yeah. And it had it had basically all the stuff that WordPress does today. I mean, this is back during the day when both when the idea of server side includes was still new. Uh, but uh, and I'm really dating myself on that one. <laughs> and uh, and you know you'd have people rotate through the board and they'd have their own favorite web designer that they wanted to throw some extra business at, and they would say, "Oh well, this guy's bidding us three thousand dollars to do this. My person get it done for $1,200. And so I went back to my three thousand dollar person and I said, um, "I said, look, I'm uh, I actually like your work, and I'd like to and I'd like to make sure that the board votes for you." I'm having a little bit of a problem with uh, this because somebody else is coming in saying they can do the same thing for $1,200. And he said, look, here's the difference. Here's the difference. Um, When you call me up a year from now because you need something updated or something evolves and you need something changed, I'm not going to nickel and dime you $50 here and there. That $1,200 person, um, if something breaks on it 30 days from now, they're going to charge you $100 just to take your call. Right, and so I learned something there, which is don't be afraid to go a little high in your estimates because that will give you the cushion that you can then over deliver a little bit because you've already factored it in.
2: Yeah, that that stuff is can be so tricky. I, I remember this just rough day with my uh, sales guy many years ago. We where we learned we actually I think it was like a seventy thousand dollar bid, and we lost the project because we were under six figures. <laughs> <laughs> and so the pricing is so interesting. Positioning is so interesting. I, I remember another time uh, we decided to raise our rates from 115 an hour to 200. Um, it the pencil the pencil the numbers in, and it would it is going to bring us out of kind of a rough rougher season of lower profitability. It's amazing how a little change like that received almost no pushback and made us uh, profitable, very profitable again. Um, I, I think just the pricing is, uh, such a fun topic to talk about lots of different facets there.
1: Okay, hey, remember I told you about the guy who abandoned his projects for seven months and tried to come back and be a hard ass with me. Um, yeah. when he and I had first negotiated that, uh, project, um, uh, I'd give him a number. And again, this was over 10 years ago and it was pretty simple. So I told him $2,700 and, uh, and he said, <sighs> I understand what you're trying to do. And I know you're in marketing and the, uh, the whole thing with the sevens and everything else, but uh could you just give me a round number? And I said, okay, so like 3000. He said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so just like that, I got $300 more out of him just because he wanted a round number.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Clients are so funny. I mean, yeah. the stories throughout the years.
1: I, le- I, le- I learned that from a friend of mine who's been in car sales since he was a teenager. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, you know, he was working for a used car dealership early in his career. And you were talking about, you know, clunkers and junkers. And people would say, hey, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, that 1983 uh, Caprice Classic, um, uh, could I pay 1700 for it? And he'd say, eh, I don't like odd numbers. Let's make it 2000 right. And they'd say, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, right. that was that, that. was actually his phrase. I don't like odd numbers. And he would just round it up to an even number.
2: Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, another, another thing as as far as pricing that uh, I found really interesting, and this is actually a shout out to Jason Swank. He's a, a agency uh, consulting yeah. guy. Maybe you've heard of him. Yeah. Um, but uh, this this one blew my mind. Um, uh, he talks about um, when you uh, when you do your installment plan for payments. Um, uh, do it uh he suggests milestone and then a uh, uh, date based. And so yes. what we were doing was very common, very common lots of people do this, 50-50. Give me 50% down and then 50% on completion. Well, that can be horrible. Um Oh, you, yeah. The the yeah. project feels like it's never done so you never have the courage to ask for the final payment or they shut you down when you do the the idea behind this other way to do it is so I, what we would do is uh quarter payments and so 25% uh for each payment and then we couple them or we would add add to those a uh a milestone and then a per, uh, or a date i love this so think uh-huh. um, 25% uh at the beginning of the project 25 per, additional percent um at uh once maybe some discovery or wireframes are completed or um, 35 days, um, and then you you keep going with that, and then you say, and then uh, the final 25% is on project completion, or you know 250 days or whatever, depending on what your business is and how long your your life cycle is. Yeah. To me, that was so amazing. Um, I, I would never have believed this, but we I have actually had customers in the past that have paid me 100% when we're only 20% done with the project, and I as you. You may you may have seen this, Adam. I've literally had people uh, pay me for projects that never even happened. <laughs> that, um, that that that's
1: happened to me too. I mean, I've I've gotten paid on several things they never got around to. And what I you know what also jumps out at me is you know we're used to doing installment plans. And I speak when I say we, I say as entrepreneurs in general. So let's say it's a six thousand dollar project. Okay, so two thousand now, two thousand and thirty days, two thousand and sixty days. Now what i have discovered and i've played with this and i found it sometimes actually works particularly with a reticent prospect is you turn it into well we need 2000 to get started and and actually let me tell you what i did with one instead of originally we were talking about talking 2000 2000 2000 i said well actually in order for this to really work i need 3000 because all of my costs to get this done or on the front end because I need to pay people right away to get them working on the various pieces. So I need 3000. Uh, and I even come out and say, not only to, to cover all these expenses and all these acquisitions, but also because I need a piece for myself. So I need 3000 up front. And then we can do 1500. Once we arrive at this point, which I knew myself would be about two to three weeks down the road. And then we'll need the other 1500 before we hand you the case. Right. And then I and then I left that last piece open.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But you've got you've got a good chunk of the of the whole. It's so funny. It just makes me think of like you hear so many people, whether it's a a worn out agency owner or freelancer or business owner, whatever the case, you know, saying, you know, I, I hate client work. I hate customers. But at the end of the day, what you really need is you need help. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? because the what you just described is a great way to handle various scenarios. But without that, you're just kind of down down a creek. Um, so if you can if you can, if, if you if you subscribe to a model of continuous improvement, every time something goes bad, something goes wrong, I'm going to strategically think through how to make it better in the future, then regardless of how profitable for it you are for the month, Things will get better and better over time. And that I think that keeps uh, business exciting um, and it, and hopeful and, uh, for the for the future. Yeah, I think so too. Now, here's a
1: point I mentioned in the green room that I want to get in here because this is actually something that's been pointed out to me by a few folks. Um, I'm going to preface it with something from my web development days and I'm going to translate into what we're doing today. Uh, so I found that when I was in the web development era, that if somebody asked me to send them a portfolio of previous work, that that was in every case that I encountered, actually a gentle brush off, because they did not intend to do the deal to begin with, and they were looking to drag out the conversation and have me provide them something where they could say, "This isn't what we're looking for." Thanks anyway. Yeah. So in other words, so in other words, judge us by what we had done for other clients who were different from them without even involving the part where we made it bespoke or unique to that particular prospect. That's the first piece. Now let's translate. Now let's translate it into today where um, I found that sometimes somebody says, yeah, write a proposal and send it to me. Then that's kind of where the conversation will sometimes end because either they will become unavailable for subsequent conversation or You'll get a terse response to them that says, oh, that's just too much. Right. And, then they won't, and then they won't give you anything else. And they won't even give you the time of day to explore further. So I want to run something by you, and then I want to get your thoughts on it. One of my co- what one of my coaches told me to do is never send them a document. Schedule a follow-up call. Prepare your documents. Right. And even let them know that that next call is going to be the two of you going over the proposal. And uh, regardless of whether you're using the phone or whatever, have that one be a Zoom call and screen share the proposal and walk through it with them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you stole my thunder, Adam. (laughs) I was getting ready. Um, I I completely agree. Um, The idea here is um, if someone is unwilling to meet with me, if they don't value the time it takes for me to put a proposal together, then I'm not going to do it, right? Um, Yeah. The, the idea here is uh, is chucking a proposal over the fence and just hoping for the best. Um, yeah. So that's actually form of a formal part of that's been a formal part of my process for many years, uh, which is I, I have an initial call. I want to understand your your needs, your requirements. then I'll put together a proposal if and only if you're willing to meet with me. In fact, I would want to schedule that meeting before I even start on the proposal because it takes time. Yeah. Um, so as a general rule of thumb, I think that's really, really important. Now, as an outlier, I have a funny story. Um, I once had a prospect who said, hey, I've got, you know, 25K for this project. It was on the lower end of what I wanted to take just in, in that season of things. Um, and uh, and by the way, we won't meet with you. Um, I uh, So great, great prospect. Um, here's my budget. Yeah. That doesn't work for you. And we won't meet for you. Meet with you. Well, we needed the work, and so um, I uh, I chatted with my sales guy. I said, hey, why don't we put together a, a proposal, and an interactive proposal. Let's deselect a bunch of stuff. Um, don't spend more than 10 minutes, and just chuck it over the fence. It was a, a, a one of the few times where I made an exception to the rule. Uh, we went ahead and did that. Uh, didn't hear anything from the prospect for two weeks, and I um, Lo and behold, two weeks later, I got a signature request for a project for thirty four thousand dollars They, in their own uh, environment. No pressure, um, selected things that they thought were valuable and uh, magically found nine thousand dollars. So whereas I generally want to apply that principle um, of not throwing one over the fence, if I absolutely can't, Um, I love the idea of sending over an interactive proposal that you spent very little time on. Now, you can't do that if, going back to the beginning of our conversation, if you're just reinventing the wheel every time. If you have a really solid base proposal, you can make things optional, you can include upsells, then all of a sudden you have exposure to opportunities that you wouldn't have gotten to before because you didn't have time Um, or just you didn't see enough promise. Um, So I I think uh, there's a good uh, balance there, depending on the scenario.
1: Okay, so Joe, this sounds like Smart Pricing Table, which is your service. It is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so as we wrap up here, just tell us a little bit about that. I'm on the website right now, and I see that basically what it looks like, uh, and tell me if I'm reading this correctly, like when I go to www.smartpricingtable.com, is I see that uh, what it's going to look like to the end users, you're going to give them a username and password and they're going to log in and they're going to see that. um, And you can, I guess you can configure it different ways, but it's going to look like there are things that are itemized. Um, You're going to have the option for them to click radio buttons or check boxes to add or delete features. And uh, it also has a thing where, Uh, You know, sort of like a shopping cart on a website, actually, if, uh, you know, they check off all the stuff on a proposal, and it's like $10,000, but they're not quite ready to spend that, they can just check down things to get to the $6,000 number they can hand you right now. Or they might say, oh, this is $6,000. And to add this other things, only 500 more. I'll take three of those. Now you have a $7,500 proposal to close.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a fair description. I, I, I'd say it you know it's bus- it's interactive business to business generally business to uh, business proposal software. One of the reasons why I created it is because I I I didn't have the level of interactivity that I wanted my customers yeah. to have with the previous system that we use. So as I described earlier, um, you know having upsells inside of an individual line item, and a good example of this is maybe you have an about us page and you describe it, uh, again, going back to web design uh, ideas here, uh, but you could have, maybe you're also willing to take the photos for their About Us page. Well, why not put the upsell? Why not think through what you offer and catalog those and build on those over time, and then you're not reinventing things every time? Um, We we found, um, I found using the software, customers love the interactivity. They love being empowered. Um, and a lot of times you know, it's like, if I ask them for another two grand, I'm not gonna get it. But if they just click stuff, I'll get five grand. <laughs> um, and so yeah. that's, that's the impetus for a smart pricing table. Um, and also I should mention, Adam, uh, if anyone uh, is interested in a demo, if, if you create pro- proposals and um, maybe it's a painful process for you, um, I'd encourage uh, listeners to uh, schedule a, a free demo. Um, yep. And if you mention this podcast, I'll actually give 50% off your first two months after the free trial. Um, so mm-hmm. a, a good deal there. And then I also offer uh, uh, consulting if you just don't know which way is up and want to think through your proposal process mm-hmm. together. So
1: Okay, great. So I'm going to, Again, that, that's a very generous offer. Thank you. I'm just going to point people again to the website. It's www.smartpricingtable.com. Be sure to check that out. I'm checking it out myself. And with that, and with that, my friend, uh, Joe R. Sir, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor, and believe me, in education.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Adam. A pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me on your show.
0: We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show.